Welcome. Uh, this is going to be a really special interview for me. I've I've really been looking forward to getting Dr. Peter Williams on to talk about his book and to kind of give you some of his case for the trustworthiness of the Gospels. So um, I'm Mike Winger, and this is where you learn how to think biblically about everything. That's the goal here. I'm joined today by Dr. Peter Williams. He is the principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge, and a lecturer on the Hebrew language at the University of Cambridge. He earned his MA and MPhil and PhD at the University of Cambridge studying ancient languages related to the Bible. What excites me though <clears throat> is he's working very hard to make this very thoughtful scholarly content really accessible to people. And he's the author of the, the new book, or I, well, it's, it's relatively new still, Can We Trust the Gospels? This is such a fantastic book. Now, I, like, I'm not getting anything for saying this. Like, I've, I've, read, I've read your book, I thought it was so good. I bought copies for uh, several other leaders in my own fellowship and gave it to them. And I was I begged them to read it because I know them. And I'm like, they're not going to read this stuff I give them. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, please read this book. It's not that long. It's real easy. It's super rewarding. And um, it, it, so first, just welcome. Uh, thank you for joining me all the way from the UK. It's an afternoon for you. It's 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 too great early to be in the with morning. you. Yeah, yeah for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I don't Great like to be that. with you. And yes, it is a little book and it's on audiobook. It only lasts four hours. It's that short. Yeah. And if you're like me and you listen to audiobooks at like double speed, then it's even quicker. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. it is a habit. Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> uh, yes. Thank you so much for joining. Um, it, how about we start with this, if we can. Um, explain just so we can get on board with you how your case works. Um, so what I mean is this, that a lot of people, when it comes to defending the trustworthiness of the scriptures, what they think of is it's about a million separated issues. And they're going to find one verse here and then say, how do I prove that happened? Or one historical claim, how do I prove that happened? But your case is kind of like a different approach and I think a very robust approach. Uh, so maybe you could just explain to everybody, what exactly are you yeah. doing? Yeah, well, I think there are a number of things that, that, that got to be covered off. Firstly is, you know, we can't talk about proof when we're talking about uh, the past uh, and we're not talking about a situation where um, it's possible to show one position to be correct and the other's false. Uh, even in the Gospels themselves, uh, at the point when Jesus is being crucified, people are there under the cross thinking that this is their very best case against Jesus being Messiah. I mean, the fact that he's been crucified by the Romans is amazing evidence against the fact. I mean, they've always, uh, you know, had hang-ups about Jesus. And now there comes a point when everything's been revealed. He really can't be the Messiah because he's on the cross. So uh, I do want just to have the right framework for what evidence is that um, God has made evidence such that um, there's enough for you to trust uh, and uh, it's it's clear if you are seeking um, uh, then you will find that something Jesus himself says but that's part of the framework I'm not talking about a scientific mathematical philosophical proof mm. then we look at the question of what do we already trust and um, we find that when you compare what you have in the Gospels with for instance, other sources, what's the most common or the best known person at the time of Jesus was the Roman emperor Tiberius. You find actually we've got a lot of records about Jesus and we can test them. We can test them in so many different ways in terms of what the authors know. Um, could this all be made up? And it's not that you're proving it couldn't be all made up. It's that you're showing 
you know, the idea that it was all made up is not a simple idea. It's going to end, end up with lots of complexities and implausibilities. That's the problem. It's the fact you, you can, if you really want to do the work, you can you can claim it's been made up. But you're going to have to do lots of very complex hypothesizing to maintain that. Yeah, so <clears throat> I, th this kind of changes the discussion a bit because usually on, especially on the internet, the discussion's like, if, if I could just sort of try to poke a hole in any piece of the Bible or, or of, of, say, the Gospels, then I've sort of unraveled everything. And mm -hmm. what, you, what you're saying is, how about instead, and tell me if I'm wrong here, we, we, we take it as a, a whole theory. You're, you're going to say, let's look, at, let's look at the Gospels and say, are you saying these are made up? I'm saying that there's a weight of evidence that suggests that these are reliable uh, accounts. Yes, and and so when when we look at the specifics in the Gospels, those are all um, details that have to be explained. And of course, if you want to explain something away, you know, people are intelligent enough to be able to do that. As people can have, you know, intelligent people can take opposite takes on almost anything. But sometimes it's because they want to. Uh, you know, we see that in politics with right against left and this sort of thing, where people actually choose their own experts and come up with the, their own mm -hmm. uh, complex theory for why they shouldn't change their mind about anything, whatever evidence is presented them. Yeah. Um, and humans could do that. Um, I think what you have within the Gospels is a set of things that can be very simply explained with one outrageous hypothesis, and that is that Jesus Christ is God having taken on human flesh. Um, and if you allow that within its context, actually a whole load of things make sense. If you say, no, I'm not going to believe that at any uh, cost. It's not a cheap thing because actually what you have to do is you have to start explaining the data that there are in the Gospels, um, the knowledge that they have, the patterns of speech that they show, um, and you have to have quite a lot of people in on, on some sort of complex conspiracy. Um, and you have to start hypothesizing things that aren't things that we see elsewhere in historical documents um, uh, in that way. So um, that's one way of looking at the case. I mean, there are many different ways you could express it. Okay, great. <clears throat> so I think that helps us set the stage for the rest of our discussion right there. It's like that's that right there is these two competing hypotheses that you've got, okay, just accurate accounts or how do you explain your claim that these were made up based upon all this data and to which one better fits the data, which hypothesis. So uh, let's talk about some specific examples that I think uh, casual readers of the Gospels or those who have... they. You know, here, let me just preface it with this. <clears throat> everyone I've met, everyone who says, I know the Bible, didn't know the Bible. <laughs> this is inevitably, those who really know the Bible don't go around saying, I know the Bible. <laughs> usually, mm -hmm. usually they have like sort of this, they by osmosis by either going to church or just by being in a certain culture. They feel like they've absorbed enough knowledge of scripture um, and, and yet they're not really aware. So these are things that you might not know, even though you may, maybe you think you know the Bible, maybe you've read the Bible. You may just not have noticed these things because you may have read it like a devotional book and not doing an analysis of it the way we're doing right now. So let's talk about this. Um, how does the way the Gospels mention, for instance, places, the, mm. the, the locations, the localities in the Gospels, how does that give us reason to think that they might be reliable? So uh, I think... People can ask all sorts of geographical questions. And if you've not been to a place, you're going to do pretty badly on it. Uh, so 
Mike, I don't know even where you are at the moment. As far as I'm concerned, you're on the web. I mean, I, I, I'm afraid to say, I don't even know what state you're in. Uh, yeah. Sorry, where are you? Yeah, I'm in California. Where? California. Yeah. Okay, so I've been to California about twice. Um, and I don't know very much about California. Um, so where specifically in California? So I'm in L.A. County, South L.A. County, uh, okay. Long Beach. I, 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 I've been there, but I really don't have much of a clue. Mm -hmm. um, so if I were to try and write a story and, uh, and not be allowed to do any internet searching, um, actually to write a story about where you live in California, I would come up with the most absurd things that just wouldn't fit. You, you wouldn't get it right. So one of the things we can look at is in the ancient world, they don't have the internet. And also it's getting really hard getting any information because information has to come from travelers. Traveling takes a long time. Um, travelers aren't just there to be quizzed about everything. Um, so to get the most basic information about the land in which, you know, the events of Jesus set is not a trivial thing. So we can ask the question of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, do they have correct geographical knowledge uh, for the place where the stories are set? And yes, the answer is they do. They have amazing um, familiarity with the area. And there are only two basic ways of getting that. Either they are they come from the area or they've had detailed conversations with people from the area in which they have asked detailed questions and they have paid attention to detailed answers. And so you then say, OK, it's not just geography. We can then look at culture. Um, uh, every culture is uh, somewhat different. I don't know uh, particularly how, um, you know, California in your particular area is handling lockdown. I, mean, I might have some guesses, uh, you know, and, and handling COVID. And you see, if, if, if I don't know research, I'm not going to be able to get that right. So you start looking at do the gospel writers know the strata in society? Do they have the right number of people in the right jobs? Do they have the right uh, religious setup? Do they have the right legal setup? Do they have the right plants? Do they have the right, um, you know, temperature? I know that I know the temperature in, in California is usually gorgeous. Although it's, it rained for a week one time I was there. But, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's um, those sorts of things. And it's not just that you get one right. You've got 10 or, <clears throat> or 15 of these sorts of things you've got to get right. It, it, um, of different areas of knowledge to write a story mm. um, and so you can start saying look if someone's going to make up a story they're going to get some of these things wrong uh, if, if they don't have the local uh, information um, and it's the fact that the gospel writers are getting it plausible across the whole um, body of, of these sorts of things that makes you say it really is a simple hypothesis to say that they are reliable reporters. It's a very simple hypothesis. I don't have to posit a lot. You know, I, I just say we've got four people who are uh, writing, um, paying attention uh, to their subject and so on. The sorts of things people have with, say, a telephone game model of how things have arisen over time, uh, they actually don't manage to explain uh, the data we have in the Gospels and they end up with a lot of complexity because you have to pr suppose one mechanism for how this lot of accurate information got in and another mechanism for that um, and you add the speech in there you know say that the patterns of speech that um, the characters in the narrative refer to Jesus one way he refers to himself another the narrator refers yet a third way um, and then we could analyze the different patterns of speech because we have things that are in John's gospel and only in John. We have things that are in uh, Matthew and Luke and shared. We have things that are in Mark and Matthew and Luke, things that are only in Matthew, things that are only in Luke. And you start looking at all of these different types of material and you can 
you've just got a, a wealth of data to analyze. I mean, uh, and so you can look at it and say, look, can people falsify this number of of words? And the answer is no, it, you really would get found out. Yeah, so maybe you could help us with, that's kind of like a good overview, right? We want to, I think what you want to show us is for the audience is the scope, right? The scope mm -hmm. of, of all the little details we're looking at saying this was not likely fabricated. Um, but maybe you could tell us an example from uh, your work about the names that are in the Bible uh, as far as places, uh, yeah, the, sure. the localities. And you even mentioned less significant places that the gospel authors seem familiar with. Yeah, so you can, you can look at, um, okay, all four gospel writers, they know of uh, Jerusalem. Fine, that's easy. Capital, no, 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 no big deal. Uh, but it's the fact that the gospel writers know different towns from each other, or they mention different towns from each other, um, but they would mention a small place like Bethany or Bethphage. Well, you know, how do you know of the existence of such a little village outside Jerusalem unless you've traveled there or had detailed conversation with travelers? Um, and they also uh, mention small places like Chorazin up in, in Galilee. So they, they have Judean knowledge. They have Galilean knowledge. Um, they will mention places that are even below the level of village. So when Matthew and Mark mention the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, on the Mount of Olives. This is really striking because they just say there's a garden called Gethsemane. They don't say what Gethsemane means, but we know from our linguistic knowledge that Gethsemane means press of oil, oil press. And guess what you have on a mount full of olive trees? <laughs> you know, it's all about oil. Um, so just those sorts of details that you have um, really do show that they've got local names, local language rights. Um, they know where the land goes up and down, topography, traveling times. Um, when um, you have Jesus telling a story, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is 750 meters above sea level. Uh, and Jericho, uh, you know, is about 250 below sea level, lowest city on earth. Um, yeah, you go down that road. Um, and lots of other uh, times that these sort of ups and downs occur correctly so you start saying the gospel writers on the question of geography have knowledge they have local knowledge um and this is um impressive and when you combine it with all of the other tests you find uh, this is significant and they can't get it from books they can't go to strabo's geography and get it they can't go to pliny the elder and get it because they don't have that level of knowledge uh of uh, the land of jesus so uh, they're um, there aren't other sources they can go to to read these all off. Um, Josephus, you know, let's say they wrote knowing Josephus. Well, Josephus doesn't mention all of those places. So actually, it's it's a really impressive range of knowledge they've got. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. They don't have the the storehouse of trivial knowledge that we have access to with the internet and with various mm -hmm. sources. They just it doesn't exist back then. So let, let's talk about one of the things I, I thought was really exciting. Uh, you mentioned in your work, and I've read I've read his book, also Richard Bauckham's book, and it, mm -hmm. and um, but you you use this as well, and I think it's very interesting. So can you explain how the names of people recorded in yep. the Gospels uh, help also add to the case for their reliability? Yeah. So uh, what you find is that of course names <laughs> vary from place to place and from time to time. So for instance, Sean. Uh, uh, or the name Mike, or the name Graham, or the name Peter, or the name, you know, Colin. We can say of all of these names, none of them were common 
in the 17th century in China. We just know they weren't. Yeah. In fact, we know that Mike was the most popular name in the US for a number of years for for boys. Actually, uh, it and, was and, in, in the year I was born, it was the most popular name. And it's my yeah, dad's exactly. name, which just makes me the yeah, most boring so, guy. So <laughs> these, these sort of things happen. Yeah. And so what you can do is you can look at the equivalent. We have ancient data for Simon as a name. Um, Simon being the most uh, common name for men uh, from uh, Judea, Galilee, you know, Roman Palestine. Um, for, for men who are Jews at the time. And so there are lots of them. And so people actually uh, find that the Simons as a proportion of names that you have within the New Testament match documents you have outside the New Testament. That's one thing. Um, they also, we can say, um, because they're the most common name, you need to add something extra. So nowadays we have surnames. That's great. Uh, but uh, back then they didn't. But they did have extra bits they would add so they could add someone's job or their father's name or where they came from so you get simon of cyrene or, or you get simon the zealot or simon peter and you are adding that extra bit with the most common names and not with the less common names so when jesus has disciples like thomas or thaddeus which are less common names uh they they don't have these extra bits on the whole so what we find is the, the, the names that we have as a proportion of all names work out right. So if I, again, were to make up a story set in California, I probably would not get the names in the right proportion to each other. And what we find is the four gospel writers, when take them together, um, they actually get the names in very plausible proportions. Now, one of the most significant things about that is that we forget names so quickly. If you tell a story you often forget the name or you watch a film and you know the storyline of the film but you can't actually remember the figures the names of the characters in the story so easily mm -hmm. and so names are one of the things that actually drops off in storytelling very quickly it's one of those things you get wrong so if the gospel writers are getting the names right it's telling us that we are getting the stories reported to us at an early stage in transmission not after things have been through three or four uh, tellings you wouldn't be getting the st the names right you might get some of them right but you wouldn't get all of them right now people can argue against that and they can pick at it and say well what about this name and this name and try and find some ad hoc explanations you could do that i'm just simply saying the simple explanation the one that doesn't require lots and lots of extra hypotheses is the gospel writers are reporting, uh, you know, what they either saw or heard uh, firsthand. That's what you've got uh, in the uh, gospels. And the other sorts of explanations are going to take, uh, you know, a lot more work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, one of the things I like, too, is a comparison with um, later gospels that are non-canonical that like the gospel of thomas and those things yep. how they the occurrence of names is much less frequent the names have dropped out and so as you get further and further from the historical event itself you like you said you lose these names so it's it's the occurrence of names the number of names the kinds of names the the way that they're disambiguated the way that simon is simon peter to you know all, all these kinds of things are just that's really interesting stuff and it's good good scholarship yeah yeah, and, and it's based on, you know, what other people have done. Tal Ilan, a, a German scholar, uh, 
film to a lexicon of names. Um, Richard Borkham's done a lot of study on the statistics. And the statistics will change slightly over time as people discover more and more uh, names. Uh, and, and that's great. But basically, the, the Gospels are in the right ballpark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, now let's talk about plants for a second. <laughs> this is not something you'd expect to come up, but most people wouldn't expect it. Uh, but plants can actually help build the case that we're built that we're talking about here for the reliability of the gospels. Could, can you explain how botanical terms in the gospels weigh in on this discussion? Yes, I mean. Y- y- Again, it's, it's one of these tests that you can apply. So as you have with the Garden of Gethsemane being on the Mount of Olives, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is this plausible? Uh, you know, Palm Sunday, Jesus coming down, um, uh, the Mount of Olives on a donkey. Well, w- were there palm uh, branches? Is, is that, you know, possible? Um, you have when Jesus talks about the things that the Pharisees are very keen on tithing the mint and uh, the, the mint and and the rue. Um, you know, is this the sort of thing people were concerned about tithing? And yes, you can look at that. You can look at um, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke, uh, Luke chapter nineteen, and say, well, he's in Jericho, and the story says he climbed up a sycamore tree. Are there sycamore trees in Jericho? Were there sycamore trees in Jericho? And the answer is yes. And because Jericho is so low, it's got a different climate from a lot of the rest of the land. So it's one of those things that's particularly characteristic of Jericho. And those sort of uh, ficus sycamoros, and the, the, the uh, term for that sort of uh, sycamore, isn't in Turkey, Greece, or Italy at the time. So no one in those countries would even be able to make up the story and name that plant. Um, so all, all these sorts of things fit together and it's those tests again alongside the others and i could i could come up with an explanation if i need to but the simplest explanation is in luke's gospel luke 19 say of the the sycamore is either luke had been to jericho or he had spoken to someone who'd been to jericho those are your your two simple hypotheses you can always you know posit something more complex with extraterrestrials or whatever it is you want to come up with but it's not going to be as simple mm-hmm <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Um, I, I I love this the sycamore thing is really interesting, and we're talking about. Uh, is my understanding is that a lo- lot of people, a lot of scholars, think that Mark was probably written outside of Palestine. The yeah, and, and and I'm I'm very happy with that. I mean, I, I I think the gospels don't come with dates on them, but they do come with names on them: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. Um, two Matthew and John I, I take to be eyewitnesses, and Mark and Luke not to be eyewitnesses, but to get their um, you know, research from eyewitnesses. Um, you know, they've done um, good research, and two eyewitnesses, uh, Matthew and John, uh, is enough. I mean, that, that's that's the uh, legal requirement in the Old Testament law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it, neat stuff. Okay, let's talk about um, undesigned coincidences, and this is mm-hmm. such an uncommon term that spellcheck will constantly change it to undersigned coincidences. <laughs> I see whenever I see people tweet or comment on 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 you know, social media about undesigned coincidence, it's, it always ends up undersigned coincidences. Oh, <laughs> so I always try to double check. But um, can you explain what, what undesigned coincidences are and then maybe give us some examples of those things? Yeah, so this is a sort of argument that goes back to a, a couple of people who spent time in Cambridge, uh, William Paley and then later on John J. Blunt, who really applied it to the Gospels in a more detailed way. And uh, basically he says... Um, when you have different witnesses independently to um, events, uh, what you 
often expect is that there will be very subtle agreements between what they say, which is so subtle that you can't say they were put there by one in order to make it look plausible. Actually, um, the most the simplest hypothesis is simply that they're telling the truth and that's why these narratives agree. So you can call it, if you like, subtle agreements that are too subtle to have been put there deliberately. And, you know, when I used to um, prosecute student plagiarism um, and uh, interrogate the students individually about how their work ended up being so similar, you could tell who was telling the truth because, you know, the person who's not telling the truth is going to have to come up with a very... um, very complex story and and the person who is telling truth will have a simple one um so examples of this would be for instance where in mark's gospel with the feeding of the five thousand um it just tells you uh, they needed to come aside because many people were coming and going it's clearly very busy and jesus has got to get aside from somewhere to get out of the, out of the rush um john's gospel doesn't have that it's really busy but it tells you it was passover time and you suddenly realize where well, of course well at passover time that's the biggest commuting time uh, of the year it's a bit like you know uh, thanksgiving uh, has been mo- uh, mo- most years uh, you know in the u.s where people uh, you know try and book a flight at that time it'd be it'd be difficult i mean what it will be like this year will be <laughs> another question but, yeah. but normally you know it'd be a busy time and and so there's a subtle agreement that you get or again with the same miracle in John's gospel where um, in John uh, Jesus turns to Philip and asks him where to buy bread from and then Philip and Andrew are involved in the reply about where to get bread from why does that happen well um, you read John's gospel you don't know but Luke tells you the feeding took place near Bethsaida and John and John alone tells you that Philip and Andrew are from Bethsaida So if I read through John's Gospel, I see no significance whatsoever. Uh, But if I plug in the information from Luke that the feeding took place near Bethsaida, I suddenly understand. Okay, so Jesus spoke to a man with local knowledge and asked him, where do we get bread from? And suddenly the story makes sense. Um, And again, I can come up with a more complex explanation to explain how Luke gets that and, and so on. But it's just the simplicity of the explanation that it's reliable, which, again, I come back to. And um in one level the book was too easy for me to write um because it's not that i felt i had to force the arguments actually the arguments were falling into place uh that again i could come up back with the same theme simplicity simplicity this is what explains things Mm -hmm. and the book just to remind everybody the book is can we trust the gospels and there's a link in the video description and i'm not getting anything out of this the reason why i say that is because um there's, there's plenty of YouTube channels that live off of making reviews and doing interviews and all that kind of stuff. And the whole thing here is I just think it's such a fantastic book. Everybody should read it. And that's why I've been after Dr. Peter Williams to come and talk about it. Um, I wanted him to be able to present the case and for you guys to benefit from it. So I, I highly recommend it. There's a link in the description for it for you to purchase uh, 12 copies and give it to a bunch of people. And um, and there's also um, an opportunity for you to ask questions. So if you guys want to put any questions you have, not for me, but for Dr. Williams, if you want to put some questions in the live chat, we'll try to make time to, to answer some of those questions after we finish uh, his explanation of these different issues. So uh, l- let's talk about uh, another sort of, as, as we take all the pieces, as we're talking about pieces, we talk about plants and people's names and geography, and um, we talked about uh, undesigned coincidences, all these different things. Um, and you say, look, there's a simple explanation in each of these individual cases. And then when you add them all together, you have that mm-hmm. same simple explanation working for yep. all of them. 
the alternate theories would require sort of these really complex, seemingly ad hoc, you know, explanations. Um, <clears throat> but one response people would have is, well, and, and I think this is understandable, especially for those who haven't looked into it before. They go, well, how do I know the authors didn't just deliberately plant those details, that this wasn't just... Mm -hmm. just collusion where they said i want it to look historical so i'm going to make it look yeah. historical and i think one level i'd say is look when you're dealing with bible scholarship there's a real variety of views on the bible and there are plenty of very intelligent people who don't believe it but none of the intelligent people who don't believe the bible have try have thought that it's going to work to have the gospel writers all get together and collude to make their stories work. None of them use that as uh, an explanation, uh, nor do they f find it plausible to um, have the explanation that people, the individual writers are simply putting in details to make the story um, look authentic as, as, a, as a wide explanation. And the reason why you don't is because the gospels have different sorts of material in. There are things that are only in Luke but there are things in Luke that are matched in the other Gospels. There are things that are only in Matthew, but there are things in Matthew that are matched in the other Gospels. In other words, there's some sort of relationship between these Gospels as well. And so you, what you can't do is explain what's going on in a, in, in a way of just saying, you know, one Gospel writer put this in or this other Gospel writer put that in, because it doesn't explain the whole patterning uh, of the material. Um, and simply putting things in to make things look authentic uh, won't give you quite enough because there are other things I haven't even spoken about that you have within the Gospels, namely um, the brilliant storyline. I mean, let, pardon, let's pardon my cat. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, you know, within the storyline uh, of, of the Gospels, you have these amazing parables and people have found parables like the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son to be some of the most amazing short stories ever told. So in a sense, what you can't do is find an easy way to make something go viral and be really famous. You can't just, you know, come up with a Harry Potter series just by wanting uh, to, to, to have a, a bestseller. There are many uh, you know, people who try that and, and they, they don't. But what we found within the Gospels is there are these amazing short stories. Now, how are you going to explain that? Are you going to say that Luke made up some amazing short stories and Matthew made up other amazing short stories? Or why not have a simpler thing of saying there is one amazing storyteller called Jesus, and that's where these amazing short stories come from. That's why they're so powerful. It's actually a simpler uh, hypothesis. It explains the way actually the speech within the stories is different from the surrounding narratives you have within the Gospels. Again, that will um, be explained that way. Um, and if you were just trying to make up a story, what's in it? I mean, you know, why are we trying to do it? Look, if Jesus simply died and nothing else happened after that, um, why would people bother writing stories that uh, would uh, not help them uh, get on, uh, you know, in the Roman Empire and so on. Actually, I think people believed it. People believe Jesus was risen from the dead. That's something that needs to be um, explained. Um, and I, so I think it's these things coming together. It's the amazing storyteller, the fact that 
there are these as many accounts of Jesus' life as there are about the Roman emperor at the time, um, that, uh, and the way that life hangs together and has a meaning. Um, all of those things have to be explained, and there is a an explanation being offered for these things within the pages of the Gospels, and I think that's the plausible explanation. I like it. <clears throat> all right, let me let me. Um... Uh, throw out another question, and you do cover this a little bit in your book as well, but you don't spend all your time on it, where I think works like doing trying to do the same thing you're doing, do spend a lot of time on this, which is contradictions in the Gospels. So what do you yep. say to someone who says, yeah, but there's the Bible's, you know, the Gospels are full of contradictions, so therefore your your whole case falls apart. I can't trust them. Well, I suppose I want I want to know what they mean and what, why they think uh, what they're saying is, is something significant. So, of course, if I have any four accounts of anything at all, they're going to have lots of differences Four newspaper reports of anything. Some uh, and some of that's going to be by omission, um, because otherwise they'd just be the same newspaper reports. Um, some of it's going to be by just very different emphases. And sometimes you're going to have to work to be able to juggle to fit those things together. So I'm not worried by the fact that given that, you know, we're dealing with the length of text that we have in the Gospels, about nine hours worth of text or, or, or so, of course, if we've got four different writers, there are going to be all sorts of differences. But are those differences so stark that there could not possibly be a rational way of fitting things together when you consider that all of these people are writing under some word limit? I mean, you can always write at great length but writing discipline and and you know in a short way uh is a tough thing to do and so when you take into account say the existence of precy the need sometimes to summarize uh, more complex situations in short ways i think that goes a long way to explain things i think when you take into account the conventions they have about quotations uh where you know they don't have quotation marks back then they've got a different way uh of uh, quoting speech um, and uh, w what counts as truthful they are concerned about things but they don't have quite the same hang-ups about um, you know verbal sequences between speech marks um, when you take those sort of things into account things start uh, making sense and there aren't difficulties in the Gospels which are so large that you don't have a very large number of intelligent people who think that these are not defeaters to their truthfulness yeah, and I, I liked in your you had a discussion actually debate with uh, Bart Ehrman on um, mm -hmm. Unbelievable, and this issue came up, and mm -hmm. so I, I can't remember exactly how the exchange went, but it, I think it was something along the lines of, "Hey, contradictions, contradictions," and you're like, "Okay, well, give me an example." Like, and this is this is playing to the idea of show me the kind of contradiction that would show these these yeah. you know there can't be this reliability behind the story, and uh, yeah. and his example was uh, Judas and his death. That yep. we see recorded, um, you know, in one passage yep. we, we have he fell over and exploded effectively, <laughs> and then in another passage we have Judas hanged himself, and so it's yep. like, well, which which one is it? Um, yep. So maybe you could could respond to that as well. Uh, I think that's a very common one. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's common. And of course, that's not within the Gospels uh, just themselves. It's mm -hmm. between Matthew and um, Acts. And of course, Acts has um, that um, Judas fell or became prone, which means, you know, lying flat. Um, and 
Matthew has that he hanged himself. And, you know, the question is, can those two uh, fit together? And, of course, there are multiple scenarios in which they can fit together. Um, uh, what you have in Acts, uh, where he becomes uh, lying flat, presupposes something before that. And it and also it says his, his entrails, uh, you know, split out. You, you've got to explain that. And a vertical elevation and, you know, suicide might do something for that. But at the end of the day... Uh, it's not that I have to come up with one particular scenario to say this is how it happened. Rather, I think the burden of proof is on the person who wants to say there is no possible way that these two things can fit together. Um, uh, because, you know, they're wanting to, to rest their case that there's, uh, you know, historical error um, on that. The other thing is, of course, that um, a an argument for general reliability of the Gospels uh, isn't defeated because someone finds a particular problem. I mean, I, I don't uh, particularly care to concede anything. I think that the, the Gospels are, are, are truthful as a whole. But, mm. but um, the you know the burden of uh, proof is on someone who wants to show that something is actually in error, um, and they're wanting to maintain that about ancient um, uh, uh, reporting. And of course, the other thing is, uh, the, you know, you could say, well, there's actually a cluster of things going on there because there's a question of, well, who bought the field? You know, um, is it that Judas bought the field uh, or or is it that people used the money to buy the field? Well, the answer is um, any transaction has to be done in a legal name. And, you know, the high priest can't take the money and buy the field in their own name. They're not going to buy it in the name of the temple. Uh, there's one particular name that, you know, is going to be um, uh, on that document and, and it will be it will be Judas's. So. Um, and when people, you know, bought fields, usually there's actually a written um, transaction about this. I mean, it's very important that you have, you know, lots of ancient documents about land sale. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I, you know, when I looked into this particular contradiction, it, or supposed contradiction, I, I don't really see a big problem here. Like, I, I have a hard time seeing the great difficulty that others sometimes perceive. And so it's surprising to me when it's brought up as like, the example <laughs> that's what mm -hmm. i'm like really that's your example i would i mean you think of a real big contradiction it'd be like something like jesus um died in jerusalem and someone else says jesus never died he moved to china and retired like that would be mm -hmm. no, there would be a really yeah. difficult issue be tough, yeah. to reconcile um okay so we're gonna go to some audience questions because i think that that uh, we've got some interesting ones um let me see here um and, and of course, you, you know, don't feel like you have to be the answer man of every possible question, but but we'd love to hear your thoughts on these things. Um, so uh, first last has a question, says, is Paul saying, do this in remembrance of me in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four? Is that enough evidence to say Luke was written before 1 Corinthians? He doesn't mention it as written scripture as with the first Timothy reference. Uh, and I think the answer to that is no. Um, that usually when the questions of, what order was this written before that? Um, these arguments aren't really conclusive. Um, you know, intelligent people can run it more than one way. And I think uh, some people can be tempted by the idea of trying to maintain ultra early gospels. And, um, you know, you're going to run into a lack of evidence for that. I think what we can say is that you know, if the gospel writers uh, are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there are definite time limits on when people, you know, two people who are disciples of Jesus and Mark, let's say a follower of Peter and, and Luke, uh, um, a companion of Paul. There are time limits on when those sort of people um, can write because people don't live to 
uh, vast ages. And so the, the, the Gospels, I think, are first generation Christian documents. But as for numbers and dates on them, I don't think there's really decisive evidence uh, on, on those sort of questions. Great. Um, before we do another question, I want to mention uh, you right before we started the interview, you, you talked about a free uh, resource on Tyndale House. Mm -hmm. um, you could tell yes, me what that so, is. Well, it's it's a magazine for people who are interested in the Bible and want to hear what scholars have to say aimed at lay people uh, about the Bible. So TyndaleHouse.com uh, is where I work. TyndaleHouse.com forward slash magazine. It's a magazine called Inc. Because we're T Tinder House, which is T-H and then Inc together makes think so uh like tinderhouse.com <laughs> forward slash magazine and it's free um and uh regular news scholars uh, you know are writing for ordinary people uh to be excited with historical information about the bible and I will put a link to that once the interview is over. Yeah. I'll put a link in the video description to that as well. I recommend it. I, I I also follow you on Twitter. I like reading your your threads that <laughs> go over my head frequently, but they're still very interesting. <laughs> so um, let's look at another question here. We've got um, um, how do you approach the issue of the centurion's servant? Uh, in one gospel, he comes himself to Jesus, and in another, he sends emissaries. Just curious. <laughs> So, I mean, I think, again, uh, things can be, uh, you know, multiply explained. But we do know that Matthew uh, is uh, someone who, as he writes his gospel, shortens a lot. So when you, you compare uh, what he does uh, alongside Mark, you'll see it's a lot shorter. And I think that um, it explains, uh, you know, some of what's going on um, in, in, in Matthew um, and that often what you're getting is a summary in just a relatively few words of something that would have been a much more complex and involved situation. The question is, you know, um, can that be true? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. Great. <clears throat> okay, here's another question. Um, and I think this might relate to Mike Lycona's work um, on the Gospels. It says, what do you think of the literary devices view that the Gospel writers felt free to move events, add and subtract sayings for theological reasons? Mm -hmm. I guess that's kind of a complicated issue to get into, but yes. Yeah, so, so I mean, the question is, um, when you look at ancient uh, texts, um, Mike Lacona has argued that there are a number of different conventions which were available to writers of the time, um, which might make them do things that for us would look, you know, untruthful or whatever. What I'd say is, each one of those conventions needs to be analysed and demonstrated in a sense so you have to go to ancient writers and you don't just need to say well does plutarch do this a story one way here and the story another way there and then because there's a difference that shows us there's a convention because you know plutarch may not remember that he did one thing and the other or it may be that a, a reader at the time would have said no i'm not happy with that so i think we need to raise the bar of uh, proof uh, reasonably high before you can say definitely that such a convention did exist it did exist i don't see that it's necessary to suppose a lot more by way of convention than simply um a certain amount of precy going on a certain amount of reordering of events particularly when gospel writers do not show a clear chronological link so they simply say and this they say they can arrange things topically mm -hmm. i think there are certain conventions about 
uh, speech and the fact that for us there's a very very clear line between quoted speech in quotation marks and the other stuff uh, which uh, is not as as clear a line though those are three major ones i think other ones would be smaller ones but i don't see it as happening uh in the same uh, wholesale way um as as some would much though i think it, it's good that they are exploring these sort of things yeah i, I find the whole topic fascinating fascinating myself but i i really think you gave a lot of good wisdom there let's break these down into individual conventions let's make sure we can establish each one as a convention not just as something one author did and yep. then then the application of how does that apply to the to the new testament yep. is a is a separate journey so it's complex complicated <laughs> um okay um let's see here we have a question can you elaborate on the way the term ebed has changed in meaning from servant to slave over the past few hundred years. Not, not exactly on the topic today, yeah. but an interesting question. So this question. is not on the topic of the Gospels, but ebed is a Hebrew word mm -hmm. uh, which used to be mainly translated servant. It occurs about 800 times in the Old Testament and uh, has, you know, more recently been translated slave. I believe the ESV um, does that. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, to some extent. And so one of the questions is, you know, is this a good thing? My problem, I suppose, is this is I like translations to be really quite consistent. And so uh, if you're going to translate it as slave, in some cases, I'd like you to do it every time. And that includes in the Old Testament when they have a dialogue which goes a bit like, what does my Lord say to his servant? Mm -hmm. You know, where we might just see it as just politeness, but unless the term is used consistently, say in English, how is the reader who doesn't know the original language is supposed to work out what's actually going on? Uh, obviously, um, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there was was slavery but usually when we think of slavery we have particular historical images the north atlantic slave trade and so on uh, in mind and we need to make sure that when we read the old testament we remember none of that had happened um, and so therefore we almost unknow what we know in order to read what's actually there that's very important i think that's hugely important and 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 i think that for most people that i encounter and talk to about these issues the word slave to them, that's that's all it means. It it's it mm -hmm. it is the 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 uh, atrocious history that they've seen the the movie Roots. That's what it means. And so by translating it with that word, you actually short circuit people's ability to to go into the culture of the Bible and find out what was happening at the time. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think opinion, you've but. got a you've got a couple of roots. I mean, you can either translate all eight hundred a slave, in which case you'd have to you know. Um, the, the, the slave of the Lord in Isaiah 52, uh, you know, uh, behold my slave and so on. And Moses would be the slave of the Lord. And then you'd have to think of it that way. Or they're all servants. Mm -hmm. What I don't like is this sort of differentiating where if we're talking about a law, then we do one translation. If we're talking about Moses or Joshua, we, we use another translation. That to me doesn't help people access the mindset and really understand it. Mm. Okay, this is uh, from GSM who asks, in your book, you don't talk much about Q. Could you give your opinion on that? So uh, just to explain, Q is uh, the name given for material shared between Matthew and Luke, um, which uh, they don't share with, with Mark. And uh, a common hypothesis for how the Gospels came around is that Mark came first and there was a document called Q and that Matthew and Luke then used Mark and used Q 
and that's how it came about um i deliberately presented an agnostic uh position mm-hmm. on this um there are people like uh, mark goodacre a very um competent new testament scholar who, who who doubt the existence of uh q and uh different people have different views i don't think that the argument for the reliability of the gospels depends on a particular uh, literary model about the relationship and the order of the gospel mm. so i and try and make uh, my argument be, be able to work uh, anyway i've got i've got hunches but i haven't gone public on them okay <clears throat> all right you could just be hunching on your own then i suppose <laughs> it's it, it is fascinating but i do think that the question a lot of regular old christians should ask is how does q whether it exists or doesn't exist how does that affect my bibliology my view of scripture and it doesn't actually affect it very much in all reality it's really interesting but i don't i don't see how it affects things all that much yeah and it doesn't affect your case at all um so uh katie mullinax has a question she says luke 2 verses 1 and 2 is that the consensus that um that sent Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem? If so, I thought Jesus was born from 6 to 4 BC, but Quirinius was governor over Syria in AD. So it's the old question mm-hmm. of, does the, yeah, you right. know, the, the Quirinius uh, uh, thing. Uh, uh, well, well done. Uh, and, and that's the most difficult, I think, historical problem uh, within uh, the Old Testament, uh, sorry, within within the New Testament, within the Gospels. Um, hmm. And so, uh, you know, you, you can... Um, read these a number of different ways there are a number of different solutions none of them i think are defeaters uh, to the reliability of the text um so i think what we do know is that um augustus caesar augustus was very interested in measuring uh, the number of people in the Ro- roman empire in his own record of his deeds um it said that he took three um what are called um lustra of, of these are a particular sort of survey of citizens but if you read his own record you'd get the impression he never took money from anyone all of his time that he was in charge he never actually taxed people he only ever records giving out money um and you know paying for this and that and and so actually no i think um that there is something missing uh, there and that one way uh you know well there are multiple ways that you can read what's going in luke one and two uh, and you can read it with Quirinius being governor at the usual uh, thought time uh, from from six, but to see that uh, the census is something that takes place over, over uh, a period, uh, which is uh, leading leading up to that. But you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot we don't know, and we've got to recognise that even our views about who was governor when, um, uh, the, these things are not fixed with absolute certainty certain amount they depend on taking josephus as um, a reliable witness at the time uh, those sort of things have been questioned so i would just say i'm not an expert uh, but none of the you know and i've read you know uh, the usual solutions i don't go for quirinius having been governor twice or anything like that uh, but none of them seem to be things that can't um uh yeah be explained with the gospel still being reliable. Yeah, and maybe you could just mention really quick. So, um, and may- maybe I'm not understanding this well enough, but the idea that that is sort of comes down to a question of how how much do we lean on Josephus versus Luke for the more accurate information historically here? It, that at least is one of the discussions. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, so uh, maybe I need to talk about probabilities. 
um, the the problem is what what if you've got a a number of possibilities um, but they're all quite remote possibilities so maybe covid can help us think about these you know one of the possibilities is that people find a solution this way in other ways we find a solution this way but do they have a combined probability and i think there's a way you can look at um biblical problems like this you can say well what's the probability that luke uh, sorry that josephus um has actually mixed up his sources and confused two different judases and uh that's why actually he's he's posited this thing well let, let's say we give that a five percent probability and what's the probability that we've actually slightly got wrong um you know uh, the time when uh, quirinius is governor well, and you give that a certain probability what's the probability that the word first census actually means um this was before the census mm -hmm. um i don't give that a very high probability but you know maybe another five percent in there and so what you start seeing is i don't have to pin myself down to an individual solution to say the combined probability that um uh, one of these solutions works may be actually a higher number than any of the probabilities individually. And I think one of the problems that people have is they feel that they must latch onto one individual solution and that that must be shown to have more than a 50% probability. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that is the case at all. I just don't think that's the way uh, things work. So if someone is wanting to maintain the position that Luke must be wrong, that's their the position you know they want him to take i say well look you know you've you've actually got a burden of proof on you to show show that i'm just saying uh luke is a witness this is what he says and that it's worthy of trust it's rational um to to trust that um and i think that's a, that's a position that you can um maintain um we had in our in-house um uh, journal uh, a couple of years ago an article by david armitage on, on this um uh question where he is uh, trying to argue that actually you know these bits are part of a parenthesis and that therefore they're a bit uh, chronologically separate from from the rest uh, i don't find that particularly plausible he didn't find, even as author he didn't find it particularly plausible but it had some probability well you just throw these all in the mix mm -hmm. um and uh, actually, you know, that's your most difficult problem in the New Testament. Is is that it? Well, you know, um, that isn't um, a defeater. Yeah. Okay. This is going to be our last question for today. Um, but this is about um, external evidence. So the way the question is mm -hmm. worded, you can answer however you feel is relevant. But Lena K says, what external evidence is there for the validity of the Gospels? The answer is that the... Um, External evidence for the actual events within the Gospels um, is, is, is quite limited. Um, obviously, there are certain things within the New Testament if, uh, where you have non-Gospel writings within the New Testament that might confirm some of the things in the Gospels. And within Tastus, I think you can confirm that um, uh, Christ was put to death um, during the time of Pontius Pilate and, and so on. But the answer is going to be very limited. And the answer is, when you look at, say, Galilee, someone teaching in Galilee at the time of Jesus. Well, there's basically no other record. So uh, you only have the Gospels and what they are saying that Jesus said and did. And then there's nothing else. So does that mean you, you can't show them to be trustworthy? Well, I think you can show that they know a lot about the place. But what you can't say is, oh, we've got this other record i mean there's a bit in josephus about john the baptist that again uh, fits with the new testament but nothing 
big. And so you're left with just testimony. But does, is that bad? Well, not necessarily. You can have all sorts of situations where, say, a victim is the only witness to something. That doesn't mean you can't um, test their narrative and, and show its plausibility. Um, so I think the fact that we have these four narratives uh, about what Jesus said in Galilee is a lot of evidence. It's not external because there are four of them. But you could say that Matthew is external evidence to John or John is external evidence to, uh, to, to Matthew or, or Luke. You know, they are different pieces of evidence. Um, so I think sometimes what people are saying is I want to discount all the Christian stuff, you know, because they're a bit biased and then uh, uh, find other stuff. Um, and the answer is you can't do that. But, you know, what external evidence is there beyond Egypt for most of the pharaohs? And the answer is none. You know, what evidence is there outside England for most of English history? The answer is very little. You know, some. Um, you know, so uh, of, of course the main evidence about early Christianity is from Christians. That that That's fine. Yeah. And for more, you guys have got to get at the book, okay? You, you, t you actually start with uh outside of the gospels information mm -hmm. you know what what is yeah, secular yeah, yeah. you know history we say secular a lot of it isn't exactly anyway mm -hmm. what is outside the gospels historical stuff say about jesus and 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 he you start there and then you move forward and you build your case and it's it's absolutely fantastic uh thank you so much for being here thank you everybody for joining oh, it's great to be with you yeah i'm, I'm excited because i think that uh, not only is this video going to help people to to approach it from a different perspective that in, in my mind one of the great benefits of this whole project is to get people to stop saying if I can nitpick one issue, I can unravel Christian faith or something like that. Instead, it's it's like that is not a sober approach. That is your your confirmation bias is set so low to confirm that you can just reject things. Uh, but if you look at the, the Gospels, you can say that there is not only defenses for individual nitpicky issues, but there is a case for their trustworthiness that is very expansive, that is multifaceted, and that all points to one simple conclusion and an alternate explanation in the face of that evidence is very difficult very and complicated and, and hard to put together. And I, I think that's absolutely fantastic. So uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Williams, for joining me. I Great greatly appreciate you. it.